the South of the Six podcast, bringing you the latest on your favorite Toronto sports teams from south of the Canadian border. Here's your host, Adam Corsair. Well, some people are pissed off because Game of Thrones ended on a sour note, but a lot of people are happy that the Raptors were able to take Game 3. Welcome to the South of the Six podcast. We are part of the stadium TV network and part of the Overtime Media crew. The Raptors' backs were against the wall once again, and they pulled it off, and they're now staring at a 2-1 deficit to the Milwaukee Bucks. Joining me tonight to discuss all things Toronto Raptors, Samson Polk of Raptors Republic and the Rapcast. Samson, dude, how do you feel about that win last night? Uh, after any Raptors win, you generally feel good. If they haven't sustained any injuries, the quiet thing is up in the air, but I think it'll end up being okay. So, you know, it sucks a little bit to not win in regulation. The Raptors have already been pretty short on the bench and riding their guys a lot, but a win is a win. A lot of the adjustments they made have me optimistic going forward, even though I didn't choose Raptors to win the series to start. But there's a lot of things to like, and, uh, you know, hope springs eternal. I don't blame you. And it's sort of, this is what we've been preparing for, right? Like the entire season, it's been all about load management. It's all about time management. It's always been about getting ready for the playoffs. And lo and behold, we have a double overtime game last night where Kawhi plays, I want to say it's a career high of just over 52 minutes. Yeah, so there you go. So, you know, injury aside, just the, the strenuous nature of the game, him playing almost an hour, uh, you gotta, you gotta thank God for the foresight of being able to utilize the load management during the season and being able to keep him fresh. Because had he not been fresh, I don't know that the Raptors are are pulling away with that victory. Yeah, I mean Kawhi Leonard, he's one of at least looks right now objectively a top five player as far as these playoffs alone, a top three player, and there's almost no limit to the type of positive impact he can have on the Raptors and his health is the most important thing. And we saw that reflected in how the regular season was handled, how his minutes were handled. And there's a fair expectation that he has to come out in the playoffs and leave it all on the floor as he has been doing. And on top of that, being efficient, being a world beater and the Raptors are where they are now because of him. And if they go farther, it'll again, it'll be because of him. So yesterday, the, the talk of, you know, on Twitter and amongst the media before the game was centered around Nick Nurse's rotations and how he's going to utilize maybe a different starting lineup. Um, it ended up not being so much to the, to the dismay of some fans prior to the game, uh, specifically geared around Marc Gasol and his poor game, too. Um, you mentioned on your show that you were in favor of maintaining the same starting lineup. Um, you'd rather raise their ceiling than their floor. Um, do you think that this is something that, you know, Marcus Hall has proven himself worthy to continue to be in the starting lineup and this is sort of a non-issue moving forward? Or do you think maybe the, uh, the deficit was a little too thin towards the end of the game and maybe Nick Nurse would be better off switching, uh, some players into the starting lineup, specifically maybe taking out a Danny Green and putting in a Norman Powell? That seems to be a popular, uh, option right now. Yeah. As for the question regarding Marcus Hall, he has the pedigree. He has a history of success, and he's a very cerebral, intelligent, and conscious player when he's out on the floor. If he's making mistakes, he probably knows them faster and quicker than anybody else, and he'll be the first one to correct them. Does he deserve a spot going forward? Yeah, definitely. The Bucks 
They give up a lot of corner threes to wing players and guards, and they give up a lot of above-the-break threes to big men. Marcus All happens to be a big man who can hit above-the-break threes. That seems to be one of the largest keys to unlocking the Raptors' offense, especially against the Bucks' defense. And as far as Marcus All, yes, 100%. I think that he should be the starting center. I'm very happy that Nick Nurse kept him in the game, as you alluded to earlier. That was what I wanted from him was to maintain the status quo. As for Danny Green and Norm Powell, there's a little bit more room to shake things around there. Obviously, Norm Powell had a great game. I, I wrote a feature about it last night. It came out today. He was fantastic. The Raptors were very good with him on the floor instead of Danny Green. But I do, even if it might seem a little bit intellectually lazy, I do still revert back to the high ceiling approach. You know, Giannis isn't going to shoot two for 12 every single game, although the defense has been fantastic and it's been really fun to watch this Raptors defensive juggernaut team do that to a transcendent superstar like Giannis. But the Raptors, they still have to trot out the highest ceiling team that they can. And the same way that Malcolm Brogdon has struck fear into the hearts of the Raptors and Raptors fans alike, when he's shooting from beyond the arc, putting up seven attempts per game for 45% from downtown, Danny Green harnesses the same potential in his game. He could be doing the same thing to the Bucks, provided that he gets out of this funk. And that's that could be very transformative for the Raptors offense. So Danny Green, a guy who, you know, in the past has had the record for most threes made in the NBA finals, had his name in the had his hat in the ring of runners for an NBA finals MVP that he didn't end up getting. But, you know, he was there because of his shooting, one of the most decorated three and D players of the past 10 years. You just got to stick it out, man. It's super disheartening to watch a guy shoot like that. But you just got to stick with Danny. That's my opinion on that. No, I don't disagree. And I think that there was a concerted effort in the beginning of the game to try to get him into rhythm and try to get him going. But the problem is, is that when the game is tight, and this might not necessarily even be a problem, it's just sort of how the Raptors operate. Um, they tend to rely on Kawhi Leonard a lot. And why wouldn't you? Um, so I think in that aspect, when they're either chasing points or they're trying to uh, run away with a tight game, giving the ball to Kawhi and prioritizing iso ball with Kawhi, or if not that, the second option being Pascal Siakam, Danny Green kind of gets lost in the shuffle. So I just don't know if the answer to that is maybe try to get him more involved and set up specific plays for him. I know uh, Milwaukee's defense, they're super long, and it's much easier said than done for me to just say, you know, set up a, a bunch of plays for him, set a bunch of screens so he can just jack up some threes. It's, it's not that simple. But at the same time, I do think that he would benefit, and so would the team, if they do drop specific things for him to try to get into the rhythm because if he's going on cold streaks, you're, he's not going to just snap out of it in the fourth quarter when you need him. I know there was a time in overtime where he did hit a big three. I get it. But I think Danny Green's the type of shooter that benefits from falling into rhythm. It was uh, demonstrated, I want to say, in that, what was the performance? Maybe seven three-pointers in a row or something like that in the regular season? Yeah. Um, or thereabouts. But I, I just feel, yeah, I just feel that he benefits from that. And I don't know if that is something that they're going to utilize moving forward. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. You know, the Raptors had a lot of problems in game two. Chief among them was lackadaisical relocation when working off the ball and not enough effort being put in to go get the ball. Really lazy sets were being run. You see guys like Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, they really transform the Warriors when they're very active off ball. They can completely change the outlook of an offense. The Raptors, Danny Green in particular, you can see Kyle Lowry's game 
changes a lot from when he's really active running off the ball, relocating. Danny Green would definitely benefit from a lot of activity on the offensive end, come off some pin downs, come off some curls, and come off hard. Leave your guy behind the screen. Serge Ibaka and Marcus Gasol are both more than competent screeners. They can probably get you open once in a while. And I, I do agree with you. It's probably worthwhile to just sprinkle in a set for Danny Green every once in a while because, you know, as we've seen when things get crazy towards the end of the game, three-pointers get open, three-point shooters, I should say, get open just from random acts of craziness in the chaos. And it's good to have a guy who's hot in the game to pick up the ball where it needs to be picked up and shoot in the hoop. Danny Green, as far as just giving him shots to put up, I totally agree with you. That's that's not the way to go. But like you said, sprinkle in some sets, see if you can get him going. If not, Norm Powell, he's he looks like he's going to be effective off the bench going forward. He's really great at attacking a moving defense and if Danny Green doesn't get it going just go to Norm Powell yeah that that's the direction that I lean towards I I don't know that pulling you know Danny Green out of the starting lineup and inserting Norm um I think for Norm that might benefit the team but I think for Danny Green it would definitely be a detriment because I don't see him uh being utilized correctly with the bench unit like a lot of people reference how poorly the trio of Van Fleet Ibaka and Norm have been overall in this playoff run and I tend to agree with that but I don't know if things would get any better for Danny Green if he was part of that so I think having a guy like Norman Powell who's getting hot exactly at the right time is useful because you're right if Danny Green is like laying bricks then you can pull him quicker and have Norman Powell in there as that reliable scoring option this is the overtime podcast network I mean, I don't know what it is about Norman Powell, but anytime he faces the Bucks in the playoffs, I get it, small sample size. But this guy just goes off. I mean, this is reminiscent of 2017. So I guess for that, how sustainable do you think this performance that he's showing is? Um, Norman Powell is typically a guy that, you know, throughout the entirety of the regular season, he's a good option, but he's not someone that you want to lean on. And I don't know if it's the specific matchup against the Bucks that, makes him thrive so do you think this is just merely a bucks thing or is he just getting hot at the right time or both uh, it's it's two things there's there's two players that are constantly misused by the raptors organization that's fred van vliet and norm powell and i'm sure we'll get into the fred van vliet answer later but for now the norm powell thing is norman powell and i wrote about this it came out today is he's a man of action his game when he's successful is built off of you know a decent spot-up jump shot and very quick twitch athleticism that lets him beat a rotating defense. You saw it in game three when he was leading the charge in transition and he was facing three men. He almost lost the dribble. He did a sidestep, clanked the ball off the rim. When he's attacking a set defense, when he's just running at the rim, when there's no help defense, his athleticism is going to lead him to success where he doesn't have to work and figure out how to manipulate the defense, how to turn it. He doesn't have to figure out how to attack it. He's just linear. It's from A to B. And when he's operating in that type of game, he's he's very successful. And I think that's a formula he can follow. I think it's a formula he will follow. And I think that that's something he can do and something he will keep doing in this series going forward. I don't disagree. And the one thing that I do uh, like about him right now is his confidence. His confidence is at an all-time high um, to the point where you can just see it in his rhythm. You can t- see it in his shooting. Um, but there is some little aspects of Norman Powell that you see throughout the regular season that are bleeding into the playoffs. Um, Yes, he is fearless when he drives and attacks to the rim. 
And I like that, but there is that, you know, still that Norman Powell touch that he's a little erratic with his finish, and it's not the most reliable of of layup finishes. I'd much rather see him do a little uh, jump shot, like a stop jump, um, sort of like how DeMar used to um, in the mid-range, because I think that's where he thrives, if not from beyond the arc. Yeah, I I think that that's where he thrives. And, you know, the numbers are showing it. So far in this series, he's been very efficient. He's averaging 13 points, about three boards, shooting 56% from the field and 54% from deep. That's huge. That's awesome. It's very efficient. I mean, in game three alone, he was he was great. He was one of the, the highlights of the game. Uh, scored 19 points off the bench with four total rebounds, three dimes, and about 30 minutes of play. And, you know, if, if you would have told me in the beginning of this series that Norman Powell would have been a difference maker, I would have said you're fucking crazy. But the thing about it is that with the lack of depth that the Raptors have, um, it's certainly very useful for Norman Powell to break out at this time. So I sort of hope that this run can continue. And I do think you're right. I do think uh, specifically against the Milwaukee Bucks, this is a situation that he can definitely thrive in. Yeah. And it's, it's worth noting that, you know, if we get really lucky as fans and of the Raptors and we're rewarded with, you know, a trip to the finals, we get to cheer on the Raptors against the Warriors, something of that nature. You'll see Fred Van Vliet, a very heady player, will likely become more valuable in a series like that where, you know, there's a very intelligent, not just long, but there's a lot of stunting done by Draymond Green, a lot of really intelligent switches, a lot of really intelligent help side defense being played by the Warriors. A guy who's reading the game and reading the game is a big part of what he does. Fred Van Vliet, he'll be, you know, inherently a lot more valuable. If Norm Powell has to figure out how to attack a stunting Draymond Green, it's, you know, it's not going to be as good a series for him. But if the blueprint remains the same against teams like the Bucks, and the reason why he was successful in 2017 as well, when the Bucks were playing Thon McCurr at the five a lot of it, and now they're playing Brook Lopez, you know, these guys who are very long at the rim but can get can get out of place if they're left, you know, too high, either in the paint or out, you know, even above the break. If Norman Powell just gets to attack a defense like that, he'll, like he'll get there and he'll also find open shots. You saw in 2017. The Bucks trapped DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry a lot. It left a lot of corner opportunities for Norm Powell. The same thing is happening for the Bucks right now is in game three, Norm Powell was especially good because Marcus all negotiated the defense. He hit his shot so that they had to play more above the break. There's more room below the break for Norm Powell to work and attack the defense. So I think it's sustainable. I think it's something he can keep doing against the Bucks. And with OG Ananobi out, that's, man, this is found money. It's something that's very nice to have. Yeah, it's killer, though, that OG is out. I feel like this is a situation that he could thrive in, man, especially on the defensive end. I mean, he hasn't been that reliable of a scorer this season, but on the defensive end, especially in the playoffs, I mean, when your pedigree was going toe-to-toe with LeBron James and doing it well last season, you're sort of groomed for the playoffs henceforth. Right, yeah, and that was, you know, when I was at the Raptors practice and I was was asking Nick Nurse and all the guys about OG, that was my big feature, unfortunately – it was about how I thought I was predicting OG's future success in the playoffs. I thought that he was going to have a big bounce back after a really tough year. And then obviously what happened to him happened. But I'm in the same boat as you. I'm a big believer in OG's pedigree, especially as a defender. I mean, I found a ludicrous statistic that he defended, I think, a combination of Karis LeVert, LeBron James, Ben Simmons, and Tobias Harris, I believe. So quite a few different types of players. He defended them all for 96 possessions. And I think eight shots were attempted against him in those 96 possessions. 
really crazy. It's, but players don't want to attack him in isolation. He'll never be the mismatch you look for. And he can keep a little small piece of the court on defense isolated yeah. so that the the offense of the opposing team just has to work in a smaller area. And, you know, he, he hit the game-tying shot against Cleveland in Game 3 last year from downtown. He's cold as ice. That's true. I I remember that as if it was yesterday. That's when like Demar was going crazy, and uh, you know yeah. everyone's hopes were high. And then you know LeBron James puts the dagger in your in your heart. Of course, a fucking course. All right. Well, we we talked about Fred VanVleet. I do want to get into it because, I mean, this is a notable uh, negative for the Raptors right now. Um, he's sort of been a non-factor and almost a liability throughout this entire playoff run. Um, he's been terribly inefficient this series in particular, adger- averaging only three points a game. Um, he shot, he's shooting total four of 20 from the field and 20, uh, 10, sorry, two of 11 from deep. And this is not what you want to see from the guy that's supposed to be giving Kyle Lowry some rest. Um, I know that Jeremy Lin isn't a better option on paper, but I mean, like, I kind of got to think it can't get any worse, could it? Uh, like I understand the impulse and I definitely, I think about it from time to time. You think I had mentioned that, you know, it'd be really, really such a blessing to have a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie on this Raptors team that when the bucks are leaving a lane to the rim, but their help side defense is too intimidating for guys like Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet, who obviously are pretty short and not aerial, not, not uh, prone to giving aerial assaults at the rim. They can't attack those open lanes to the rim that are being left there. And a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie can. Jeremy Lin, who, you know, he made his money and his fame off the pick and roll and having these very smooth and slinky drives to the rim, finishing with both hands, getting to the reverse layup, hitting pop shots, little, you know, in and out dribble, hitting a mid-range jumper at the right elbow. I think even this year, even though he had a bad year, I think he shot the best percentage of anybody in in the NBA at the right elbow at like 58%. Mm. I understand the impulse to want Jeremy Lin to come in and do that. However, comma, <laughs> you know, Fred Van Vliet, his floor remains as, you know, a good defender. And that's his floor. And when he's reaching his ceiling as a defender, he can be, you know, I know Matthew Delavadova's nickname is a human bed bug, but... Fred Van Vliet, he can evoke some of that energy and he can get he can get into players a lot and he can really run around screens and he can be a pest and he'll always be that. And I think that he's being groomed as this heir apparent to Lowry. And like you said earlier, you know, he's supposed to give Lowry some rest. It's just unfortunate that that's not his game. He's not a typical creator. He he's one of the best shooters on the Raptors, but he's not one of the best at creating shots. And, you know, even though it's a little bit awkward for a guy who's when I met him, it seemed like he was five ten, not six feet for the record. It's weird for a guy who's five ten to profile as a three and D player as opposed to, you know, a point guard. But he really does stylistically, when he's at his best, he does play like a three and D player. And unfortunately he's been squeezed into this role where he has to create, run a lot of pick and roll, and what that ends up being for the Raptors offense is just Fred VanVleet running the pick and roll, not being able to take advantage of a switch, passing it out, and the Raptors just running clock on offense. And that's equally as frustrating as anything you might see on a basketball court is just wasted seconds on offense and then a clanked three. Yeah. But I still think that what he brings on defense 
And, you know, my wavering faith after watching Jeremy Lin in the, the latter half of the year when he was on the Raptors, I just don't think that Lin would be able to bring the same amount of value because, you know, I, I don't think Lin is going to be a game changer on offense as much as it would be awesome if he was. I mean, could you imagine if Jeremy Lin came in and was a, a small savior for the Raptors? That would be an incredible storyline. Yeah, yeah, poetic, definitely. And and rightly so. But I, I don't have faith in it. And maybe that makes me cynical. But for right now, my answer is is no, I, I, I don't think that's one of the routes they should go with the decision making. I don't disagree. Um, I, I think that Fred Van Vliet, when left to his own devices, um, it gets a little erratic, and the decision-making just isn't there. But if he has someone like Kyle Lowry on the floor with him, it sort of mitigates that uh, lack of precision with the offensive possessions. Um, I think you summed it up right. I, th- I think that he's, he's, he's a good shooter, but he's not good at setting things up. And, and you notice that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a fair criticism with him that he's dribbling the air out of the ball. Um, there's no really sense of purpose with the possessions. He's just trying to make stuff happen on the fly. Um, I understand that he can get trapped, and he's playing a very big team, as we've already established with the Bucks. But at the same time, when you have someone like Kyle Lowry on the floor to sort of take that weight off your shoulder, and Kyle Lowry can be the primary setup guy, you know, the, sort of the general, the quarterback out there. I think that benefits Fred Van Vliet a lot. So I think it's not necessarily Fred Van Vliet playing poorly, although I think, you know, in some aspects he has. It's also a matter of the situation that he's in. And I think that if, you know, I understand there are going to be times, if not most of the time, that he's going to be on the floor and Kyle isn't. However, if Nurse can, you know, maximize Fred Van Vliet's potential by putting Kyle Lowry in there on the floor with him at certain times, I think that would greatly benefit him. Yeah, and like the, you know, what I was suggesting earlier on is that there's more room for Fred Van Vliet in a, you know, a series against, let's say, the Warriors, where that's a defense that's open to manipulation. But the Bucks, they gave up a ton of corner threes this year. And despite everybody saying that's the worst shot to give up, the Bucks said, we're going to give up this shot. We're going to stick to our guns. And they're a great defensive team, but they're also a very obtuse defensive team. They mm-hmm. they don't want to change. They want to play the way they play. They want Giannis and Brooke Lopez to wait in the paint, and they want to scare people away from there. And that's that's the way they play it. And that's why, like we were talking about earlier, Norm Powell, I think that he can sustain his success. And like you said, Fred Van Vliet, who has played poorly, but not nearly as poorly as you might think, it's just a tough matchup for him. He's not built to dominate this matchup. Would it be a lot easier if he made his open shots and a very high percentage of them? Of course, that would massage a lot of the stressors that we're currently feeling with his game. But the Bucks, they've they've made it their their business to shut down those types of actions, and they've been successful so far. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. We touched on uh, Kawhi Leonard a little bit um, at the jump of the show, so I kind of want to shift the focus to him. Um, it was no secret amongst anyone that he looked like he was battling some sort of knee injury um, after landing awkwardly on a, on a fast break. Um, obviously, it didn't hinder him or his performance at all, at least ostensibly. Um, he put up 36 points. It wasn't the greatest uh, night for him in terms of efficiency, but he got the job done. Uh, you got to give him credit. 52 minutes. That's ridiculous. Um, 
So let's just focus on the injury right now. Do you think that this is going to be something that's going to hinder him moving forward? I only ask this because I know he's a gamer. I know he's a beast. But this load management topic has been a thing all year. And I don't know if this is something that he's going to be able to play through as efficiently as we would like. You know, when you do get hurt during a game, it's obviously not going to bother you nearly as much as the next day. And he only has a full day to rest on this. So do you think this is going to be something that's going to hold him back and be somewhat of a detriment to him? Or do you think, come on, man, Kawhi's a beast? There, there will always be the elements, likewise with LeBron, that you know, Kawhi is a cyborg. I had Dave Dufour on the podcast, the Raptors Public Podcast, and he, he suggested that it could be a degenerative thing in his thigh, which was something. And then you'll hear fans who talk about, like, toughen up, play all the games. So there's there's a lot of opinions on both extremes of just how bad it could be or how small it could be and the raptors and i know i'm not giving a very good answer to this question i'm going to appeal to authority no it's all right. I'll, I'll appeal to authority and you know the raptors they're famous for having a great training staff they've been talked about a lot this year obviously we've alluded to the the load management elephant in the room and they've been a point of discussion and a positive one at least as far as how they've been discussed. And I guess I just have to trust in Alex McKechnie and, and co over there that they'll take care of Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard, at least in the past year and a half, has been brutally honest with the teams he's been on about his health. And he hasn't compromised anything as far as how he was feeling. He came back for that small stretch with the San Antonio Spurs. Then he never played for them again. And it was because of he wanted to be healthy. So if Kawhi's playing, I totally get you saying he's a gamer. But if he's playing, I think it's because he's okay to go. And maybe that's a bit too optimistic. And I'm not, I'm underselling the darker side of sports that would have a, an NBA player kind of destroy his body for a, an Eastern Conference Finals game. But I think and I hope that everybody on the Raptors is responsible enough to put his health first. But also with the caveat that, God damn, I hope he plays because it's, <laughs> it's very, very important. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I don't think that this is going to keep him out of the series at all. I, I, I think that, you know, if anything, he's going to play through it. Um, I just worry that, you know, I, I guess it's more annoying when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the whole not knowing aspect. Because this is an enigmatic figure that we've been dealing with all year. And, you know, there is frustration built around the load management. I was, you know, under the mindset that I understand it and we're playing for the big picture, that being here. But I also, in the back of my mind, there was some sort of itch right, saying, well, there are no back-to-backs in the playoffs, that's true, but once you get to the Eastern Conference Finals, it is every other day. So I don't know if this effectively pre- uh, prepares him properly to, uh, you know, for the physical aspect of a playoff series, especially the Eastern Conference Finals, especially coming off a series against Philadelphia heading into Milwaukee. I mean, that's 10 rounds with Mike Tyson right there. So I, I do hope that this isn't going to be something that hinder hi- hinders him. I don't think it will. I think he's going to play through it because, you know, if anything, we have evidence that he will with game three. But at the same time, it's something that I'm going to keep my eye on. Right. And I, I, I don't think it was talked about enough. And I think he's properly, you know, shutting it down and saying, you know, it's playoff basketball. Everybody deals with their ailments here and there. It's, it's not perfect. But at the same time, we rely on him. And I say we. The Raptors rely on him so, so much. And it shows. So if Kawhi Leonard is not 100%. And you mentioned it at the jump that you don't you don't see them walking away with this series. 
um, that's going to spell trouble for the Raptors for sure. Yeah, even more so than what Nick Nurse or Kawhi say about his health. I think what made it so that people didn't talk about it as much is a dunk in transition from above the dotted line. I think those like just the fact that he came and he had that type of explosive takeoff before he had that left-handed jam over yeah. Nikola Mirotic that that speaks to people and you you know you address the during the game it doesn't feel so bad and there's adrenaline and all that type of thing but I man I think he'll be okay. Could just be optimism though. No, I, I think I think that's fair. I think I think that every Raptors fans want to believe that he's going to be okay. Um, all right, another player that I want to touch on, and we can wrap it up after this. Um, I want to touch on Pascal Siakam. Uh, the dude had 25 points. Um, he was very very good in this game, game three. Um, I know a lot of people were ragging on him for those two missed free throws. It didn't end up really, you know putting the Raptors in that much of a deficit. You do want Tim to like make those, especially in clutch situations, to close out the game. And it was costly, but I think he more than made up for it later on by nailing the the two in uh, the double overtime. So how do you feel about him moving forward? I know he's been up and down. He hasn't been as like flashy as he has been in the regular season. And again, against a long team like Milwaukee, especially guarded by Giannis a bunch, that's to be expected. But you got to like what you've been seeing from him. Yeah, I'll preface this with maybe too long of a preface, but we do grades after every game at Raptors Republic. We give players grades, and anytime I do that little segment of you know Raptors Republic, I generally lean probably a bit to A, A-plus happy for Pascal Siakam. And there's a little bit, a small part of me that isn't able to objectively view him as a guy who misses two free throws because I view him as... Pascal Siakam, 7.6 points last year, leader or, you know, integral cog of the bench mob. And he's out here pouring in 25 points in the Eastern Conference Finals. He's defending at an all-NBA level. He's been defended by Joel Embiid in the past series, Jonathan Isaac in the series before that, and Jonathan Isaac, who is no slouch and probably will have a decent case for most improved player next year for himself. And this, you know, in this series, he's being guarded by Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's done so many things this year that missing two free throws, it, I almost, it's flippant for me. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> and, and I know it should, but it, because of who it was, because of how good Pascal has been, because of how unwavering his game has been, we saw him attacking Giannis off the dribble last game. He fearlessly went at Joel Embiid for a time. His defense has been tenacious. He allows the Raptors to do so many things that for the same reason that I wasn't, you know, upset at Kyle Lowry when he was doing bad. I'm not upset when Kawhi Leonard went on his 0 for 14 from downtown streak in the 76er series. These guys are so good and I'm not, you know, the typical fan. I don't have the the reactions of like, grr, angry. I just, I have that. I step away and I see Pascal Siakam as this glowing light in the Raptors (laughs) franchise. And maybe that sets up my answer, right? Is what do I think of Pascal Siakam? I think he's wonderful and terrific. And I love what he brings to the team. And I think even more so than Kyle Lowry, he is the incentive along with, you know, the city of Toronto and the great management. He's the incentive for Kawhi Leonard to stay and fighting through injuries in the playoffs taking, you know, 
what looks like the most difficult defensive matchup every series because Isaac, I think, is a better defender than Gordon. I think mm-hmm. that Embiid is, a, well, geez, Ben Simmons was awesome against Kawhi. Yeah. Maybe I won't sell him short there. But Siakam, he's been going against these crazy, crazy defensive matchups. And guys like Ryan Rossello can make jokes and say, remember when Pascal Siakam was a good second option and things like that. But, man, Giannis had 12 points yesterday because Kawhi was defending him. And yep. Pascal has been succeeding against Defensive Player of the Year nominees himself. And, I, yeah, I love him. I have a special place in my heart for, for Pascal Siakam. Great guy. Unique player, wonderful. I can't blame you. And you know, it 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 makes me just stare at him in awe that he's being able to be this productive in this series against an MVP candidate, maybe a top two MVP candidate, depending on how you want to rank him. What I like about him is that he's able to adjust in the moment. Like it's not these these same errors that you see over and over again. He's able to, you know, make a mental note of his mistakes and he's able to adjust on the fly. And I think that, you know, other NBA players would probably end up being shook being guarded against Giannis. You know, just the presence alone is intimidating. But I do like the fearless nature that Siakam has, you know, shown throughout this playoff run because when you're playing a team like Milwaukee that's exactly what you need yeah and that's Milwaukee the the key to Milwaukee's success in game one was that they were relentless in their you know their offensive philosophy Milwaukee they relied on their offense and eventually it came around for them Pascal Siakam bless him he does not he doesn't give up he just keeps looking for a way to do it and we've come a long way from where he was last year and now he's seen as a scorer and this wonderfully crafty low post scorer, this terror in transition, which he is all of those things. But the first great thing that we saw out of Pascal Siakam at, as part of the bench mob and when he first came to the league was like, wow, he's fast. But the second thing to me was always that he was an exceptionally good passer for his position and his um, physiology, his makeup, like how he plays, adding passing to that is what takes him from being, you know, a normal power forward to where he's getting, you know, now Lamar Odom comps just that. And that's, that, that's what makes him so good in the playoffs. And so adjustable is that when he's going towards the rim, he's not a typical role man, but when he has the ball in his hands, he's good at making decisions. He can spray to the corners. Like we saw Giannis Antetokounmpo do for the first two games. He can spin, he can find guys above the break and he can make drop off passes. He reads the defense. He doesn't just, like we were saying, Norm Powell just attacks the weak side. Pascal can do both. He can attack the weak side successfully, but he can also he can read the defense really well, and he responds really well to adversity. Let's say. Yeah, no doubt. And I th- I find it ironic that you know he's being able to be successful against Giannis because like a lot of people like to make the Draymond Green comp when it comes to um, Siakam. I always considered him like a diet Giannis. Honestly, like it, I think he's he's not nearly as good yet as Giannis. I think Giannis is just reaching his his ceiling, if not just like already there. I, I didn't th- obviously. I think the best is yet to come when it comes to Giannis. But I do think that Pascal Siakam has that within him to reach that height, um, especially because Siakam, like the the knock on him that you know we've been as Raptors fans that we've noticed, it was much like Demar that he didn't have a three point shot prior to this year. And this year is the first time that I was like, 
I'm very comfortable with him shooting whenever he wants. Like, yes, in this playoff series in particular, uh, I would like him to make more of those corner threes because he's been very successful with them throughout the regular season. It's kind of, you know, odd to me that he's not making them now. I, I guess it has to do with the length of Milwaukee. But at the same time, I do think that he has that in him. So I, I, I don't know. I have always considered him that Giannis was the nearest comp to him. I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah, there's... I don't know if he reaches Giannis's level. That would be, my God, I'd be very, very happy with that. That would be incredible, even if it's if it's where Giannis is now, as opposed to where Giannis is in two or three years. And the, the Demar Derozan making, you know, your outside jumpers thing, that's apt as well. And he's already surpassed Demar as far as spot up shooting goes. And I think he'll only get better as a spot up shooter. It'll be interesting to me to see how he develops as far as pull up jumpers go. We've seen him kind of stretch his game out a little bit, work a little bit from the mid range in the playoffs because the the defenses have obliged him to do so. It's a difficult shot, but he's been pretty good at it. It's just his shot mechanics are not good for pull up jumpers because he, you know, he aligns his toe tap with the start of his jump shot and it's a very soft toe tap that is, you know, symmetrical with spot up shooters, not pull up shooters and that's why I think he shot not as well during after he had his calf injury on his right leg. Right. Not to get off on a tangent right back to the shot mechanics thing, but it'll be interesting because you've seen on any pull up, he's his right leg is a lot farther out in front of himself than his left leg is. And it's because of he lines that right side of his body. It'll be tough for him to work out how to become a very good pull up shooter, at least if he's going to be the type of. I guess, first option on offense where he will meet defenses in the middle and he won't be passing out of it. He'll be looking to score like Kawhi Leonard does. So I think, like you said, it's very encouraging to see Pascal do what he can from three. I think he'll continue to improve in that area. Obviously at the rim, he's kind of one of a kind with how well he finishes the type of moves he has there counters at the rim. But I'm very, very excited to see how he responds with his mid-range game. And that's probably what takes him from being, you know, a Giannis light to being a Giannis, even though Giannis doesn't have that in his game, but Pascal doesn't have the inherent physical contributions that Giannis does. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. All right, let's move on to game four. Um, I do want to note that we did talk about the uh, the changes that Nick Nurse was, you know, sort of alluding to in the beginning of the show and how, you know, everyone assumed that the starting lineup would change. It ended up being the defensive matchups that changed. And I think Kawhi guarding Giannis was a huge part of why this uh, the Raptors were able to run away with this one. Um, like you said, he m- limited him to 12 points. That's no easy feat, but this is quite London we're talking about. So assuming that these defensive changes are still active on the Raptors and Kawhi is the primary defender against Giannis, do you like their chances in Game 4 that they'll be able to defend home court again and tie this at 2? Or do you think that Milwaukee's going to come back with a vengeance and uh, they're out for blood? I do really, really like their chances to tie things up. I think... It's like we talked about, not to go right back to that, but Kawhi being able to play healthy is really important because to handle Giannis on defense and also to expect what we've been expecting, which is 30-plus points every time Kawhi Leonard steps onto a court on offense, that's a lot to ask from a guy. He has to be healthy. And outside of the the Giannis matchup, the Kawhi-Giannis matchup, 
I really, really love the Pascal Siakam on Bledsoe matchup. And even oh, yeah. more than that, I love Kyle Lowry on Chris Middleton. There are certain sensibilities in Chris Middleton's game that he really leans towards very, very chucky types of shots. And I love Chris Middleton. He's a great player. But giving him Kyle Lowry in the post seems like too much for him to turn down. And that's a perceived mismatch. And it, yeah. it might not be a definitive mismatch the way that Bucks and people who aren't, I guess, acquainted with Kyle Lowry's post defense think it might be. And, you know, the Raptors completely unlocked the Wizards last year when they put Pascal Siakam on John Wall. They, when they played the Oklahoma City Thunder in the regular season this year, Pascal Siakam had a half of basketball as Russell Westbrook's primary defender. He does an awesome job of Bledsoe and being able to play off of the worst shooter on the floor for the Bucks most times and just float on defense has made Giannis's driving game far less potent. And not only that, but it's it's made Giannis's passing a lot more difficult because we saw in the first two games Giannis would just feign a drive towards the paint. He'd put his head down and then the Raptors would collapse and Reggie Miller calls it building a wall. And the Raptors collapse, they'd build their wall, quote unquote, and then Giannis would spray to the corners. Giannis is a good passer, he can make those reads. It gets a lot tougher when you have a rangy defender like Siakam waiting. And you're probably fine with Eric Bledsoe being the release valve from downtown for the Bucks offense. So, man, I, I can't tell you how much I liked those adjustments for Nurse to make. I was really happy with what he did. Really, if you're looking at that like, hey, that's my coach, I was proud of those adjustments. I thought they were very, very smart. And they make me very, very positive and confident going into game four. If the Bucks don't have an answer for that, it gets really hairy for them. You know, they're heavy favorites in this series. But if that has the potential to be the mismatch and the matchup, you know, the big adjustment in the series, the same way that putting Joel Embiid on Pascal Siakam almost took out the Raptors in the Eastern Conference semis, this this set of adjustments for the Raptors can can make them the David to the Bucks Goliath. Yeah, no doubt. And and look, Nick Nurse caught a bunch of shit throughout this entire playoff series. Maybe not so much against Orlando, but definitely against Philly. Um, not all of it unearned. I do think that he made a a, a grave mistake in Game Six, not against Philly. That is, um, not matching up Gasol with Embiid like second for second. I think that was the the key. I think he needed to do that. Um, his timeouts, especially the timing of the timeouts, have very much improved. Um, I, I like that he's stopping runs and stopping momentum more. Um, I don't know if you've noticed in the regular season, he was giving his lineups a lot more rope to reestablish themselves. Now he's not really having any of that. He wants to cut off momentum and cut deficits before they grow. And I do appreciate that. And I like how he's recognizing these things and able to cut it down and to able to adjust from it. So having said that, I do think that with this starting lineup that he's utilized, I think he should just keep going with it. Um, as we mentioned, Gasol has been a beast. Um, well, was a beast in Game Three. I, I'm glad that he still maintained confidence in him. I'm I'm liking what we're seeing, especially as you mentioned the Kyle uh, Middleton matchup. I think that's great too. I think that you know, uh, yes, the perceived mismatch mismatch in the post with Kyle Lowry. I don't think it's just like that. That's expands a lot throughout the entire NBA. People like to minimize Kyle Lowry's uh, post game, but especially defending it, he's really good at it. And I don't know that he's getting a lot of uh, enough credit from it, rather, from the talking heads out there. Yeah, I think maybe it's attached to the guy tore his ACL 
never had it repaired, just strengthened everything around it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe in his efforts to strengthen the ACL, he just went into some one punch man, super strength version of himself. And he just can't be moved in the post and perceived mismatch is, you know, it's apt. And I'm not meaning to pat myself on the back, just the term. It, it, it really is meaningful to Kyle Lowry is that he's been posted up so many times that it's this little niche market and Raptors jokes that every time he's posted up, we all start collectively giggling in all our different houses all around the world because we know that it, it isn't a mismatch and that's right. That's just not how it's going to work out. And Kyle Lowry. And again, to, to bring up the Middleton matchup, which I really love is that Chris Middleton is fantastic going off the ball. He's really good coming off pin downs. He's really, really slinky on curls, but he's not particularly potent running the pick and roll. So you're not going to have Kyle Lowry getting caught up on screens with Middleton coming downhill, pulling up for a little stop and pops. Middleton does a lot of his work in the corner offense or the pick and roll, taking little dribble handoffs, things like that. And another benefit is when Kyle Lowry is defending in the corner and he's in the back end of the defense, he directs traffic. That's an underrated part of Kyle Lowry's role on defense is he's very, very good at yelling out directions for guys to maintain their angles, how to attack close or sorry, how to defend the closeouts, how to funnel guys towards the right defender, things of that nature. And instead of having Lowry at the point of attack, which he hasn't been a very effective point of attack defender for a couple of years, but as a team defender, he's, he's very elite and he means so much along with Marcus all to what the Raptors are doing. Yeah. The only way that I see this getting iffy um, for the Raptors, especially for game four um, is if, Milwaukee does what I suspect they'll do, and they'll put Brogdon in the starting lineup in favor of Meritich. Mm-hmm. Um, Meritich, the, the the shooting is definitely still a threat. He's able to stretch the floor because you don't want to leave him open by any means. But if you look at the playoff numbers, specifically in this series, it's not great. I mean, he he's shooting thirty seven. Sorry, twenty percent from three, twenty seven, uh, thirty seven from the field. Um, he's regarded as a three-point shooter. That's what you you know bring him on your team to be. And in a series, he's shooting twenty percent from three. I don't know that you want to trot that out in your starting lineup. I think Brogdon has definitely made a case to get in there. So if that happens, I don't know. I don't know that I trust Danny Green entirely to be the primary defender against Brogdon as he's been against Miritich. Yeah, that's one hundred percent the problem. Prior to the playoffs starting. I thought that Brogdon would be getting back in the later stages of the Eastern Conference Finals, and I picked the Raptors to go to the Finals. But when it came time to pick and Brogdon, when when this series started and Brogdon came back, his presence changed my prediction. I, I thought the Raptors would win if the Bucks didn't have Brogdon. Now that they do and he's playing really well, I think that changes the complexion of the matchups. And when I was on the Buck the Trend podcast, I'll shout those guys out. When I was previewing the podcast, I had said that Brogdon not starting and Miritich starting is a very big bonus for the Raptors. That's a great matchup for the Raptors, and they weren't able to take advantage of it. And if Brogdon enters the starting lineup, that that gets pretty hairy for the Raptors. That's going to be very, very difficult to defend. And I know Danny Green has been great on defense for a very long time, but Brogdon is very, very good. And adding a guy who's that lethal to an already very good starting lineup and you're losing Miritich, who is a bit of a liability on defense. 
it's it's tough, man. I totally agree with you. That's the adjustment that the Bucks are probably going to make. Well, hopefully they didn't listen to this podcast and they're blind to it or deaf to it, however you want to put it, and uh, they keep trotting out Miritich. I think that would benefit us, as you already mentioned. But uh, I think if I'm reading you correctly, that you have a win for the Raptors for Game 4, correct? Yeah, with all my fingers crossed. Here's hoping. All right. All right. All right, um, having said that, man, this is your time to shine. You know the deal. Um, you can promote any and everything you got going on, where people can find you on Twitter, the podcast. I'm sure people already subscribe to it, as you guys are like the top dogs when it comes to Raptors content. But in the event that they don't, go for it, man. Floor is yours. Uh, first of all, uh, hey, thanks for having me on, man. You've been, honestly, as a guy who does podcasts, you've been a terrific host. This has been a, a great conversation to have. Like you said, I do my stuff at Raptors Republic. And I'm sure there's a lot of cross-pollination there. And if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Sam Folk, S-A-M-F-O-L-K-K. Throw an extra K on there. And yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to have, uh, to be on. And thank you for having me. No doubt, man. And all the links to your, uh, the material where people can find your Twitter link, the, your work on Raptors Republic, and the podcast will be in the description of the show. Samson, man, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, we'll do this again, all right? Yeah, sounds great. Take care, man. listening to the south of the six podcast don't forget to follow us on twitter and instagram at south of the six and subscribe to our show we're on apple podcasts google podcasts stitcher spotify yeah we're everywhere while you're at it if you liked what you heard do us a solid and leave us five stars and a quick review we appreciate it thanks again go jays and raptors